0: ...as he composed his sermons, in order to stop the devil peering over his shoulder. Most male members of the large Preiswerk family were clergymen, who shared Samuel's preoccupation with the occult. This Jung-Preiswerk mixture of medicine, theology, and spiritualism was to have its influence on Karl's intellectual development. The family moved twice during Jung's childhood, first to Laufen, near the falls of the Rhine, when he was six months old, and then to Klein-Hüningen, just outside Basel, when he was four. Neither of the large vicarages which they inhabited provided a happy environment for a growing child. In his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Jung describes the home atmosphere as unbreathable. He says he was oppressed with a pervasive sense of death melancholy and unease, and with dim intimations of trouble between his parents. He tells us that they did not share the same bedroom, and that he, Karl, slept with his father. When he was three, his mother had a breakdown, for which she had to spend several months in hospital, and this enforced separation, at a critical stage in his development, seems to have affected Jung for the rest of his life." Although Karl was cared for by an aunt and a maid while his mother was away, he recalled being deeply troubled by her absence. He suffered from nervous eczema, and had terrifying dreams. From then on, he says, I always felt mistrustful when the word love was spoken. The feeling I associated with woman was for a long time that of innate unreliability. Jung's father was a kind, tolerant man, but his son experienced him as powerless and emotionally immature. Quite early in his ministry, Paul Jung seems to have lost his faith, but lacking any alternative source of income, felt compelled to persevere with his parish duties. The strain of keeping up the appearance of piety while lacking all religious conviction, helped to turn him into a querulous hypochondriac, whom it was difficult for his wife and son to love or respect. An only child, until his sister Gertrude was born in 1884, Karl was unhappy at school, feeling alienated both from his companions and from his inner self. His rather schizoid, i.e. withdrawn, aloof and self-absorbed manner, made him unpopular, and the school environment was one in which he just could not flourish. sense of personal singularity was aggravated by traumatic incidents, as when a master accused him of plagiarising an essay which he had composed with immense care. When he protested his innocence, his schoolmates sided with the master. Such experiences made him feel branded and utterly alone." For a long period he dropped out altogether, having developed a proneness to fainting attacks after a blow on the head when knocked over by another boy. As he lay on the ground, much longer than necessary, he thought to himself, "'Now you won't have to go to school any more.' He spent as much time as he could on his own. I remained alone with my thoughts. On the whole, I liked that best. I played alone— daydreamed or strolled in the woods alone, and had a secret world of my own. This secret world compensated for his isolation. The fantasies and rituals common to childhood assumed a heightened intensity for him, and they influenced the rest of his life. For example, his adult delight in studying alone in a tower he built for himself at Bollingen on the upper lake of Zurich, was anticipated by a childhood ritual in which he kept a carved mannequin in a pencil box hidden away on a beam in the vicarage attic. From time to time he visited the mannequin and presented him with scrolls written in a secret language to provide him with a library in the fastness of his attic retreat. This gave Karl a feeling of newly-won security, which sustained him through his father's irritable moods, his mother's depressive invalidism, and his alienation at school. No one could discover my secret and destroy it. I felt safe, and the tormenting sense of being at odds with myself was gone. Another childhood ritual prepared him for his later insights into the importance of projection in psychology. It was an imaginative game which he played as he sat on a large stone in the garden— he would intone, I am sitting on top of this stone, and it is underneath. Immediately the stone would reply, I am lying here on this slope, and he is sitting on top of me. Then he would ask himself, Am I the one who is sitting on the stone, or am I the stone on which he is sitting? This left him with a feeling of curious and fascinating darkness— but he knew that his secret relationship with the stone held some unfathomable significance. In this game we can trace the origins of Jung's mature insight into the mysteries of alchemy, that the alchemists had projected the contents of their own psyches into the materials on which they worked in their laboratories. Jung's adult delight in solitude, his alchemical studies, and his research into the dynamics of psychic transformation were also foreshadowed in an adolescent fantasy, which entertained him as he walked each day from the vicarage at klein to the school he attended in Basel. It was a vision of an ideal world, in which everything would be better than it was. There would be no school, and life could be arranged exactly as he wished. On a rock, rising out of a lake, sat a well-fortified castle with a tall keep, a watchtower surrounded by a small medieval city, ruled by a council of elders. The castle was Karl's home. Here he lived as Justice of the Peace, emerging only occasionally to hold court. In the harbour lay his personal two-masted schooner, armed with an array of small cannon. The crux of the fantasy was the keep. It contained a wonderful secret of which Carl was the sole possessor. Inside the tower extending from the battlements down to the vaulted cellar, was a copper column as thick as a man's arm. At the top were fine branches or filaments extending into the air. These extracted a spiritual essence from the atmosphere, which the copper column drew down into the cellar, where there was a laboratory in which he transformed the airy substance into gold. He wrote later, "'This was certainly no mere conjuring trick.' but a venerable and vitally important secret of nature which had come to me i know not how and which i had to conceal not only from the council of elders but in a sense also from myself within the security of his inner citadel karl experienced himself as made up of two separate personalities which he referred to as number 1 and number 2 respectively number 1 was the son of his parents who went to school and coped with life as well as he could, while number two was much older, remote from the world of human society, but close to nature and animals, to dreams and to God. He conceived number two as having no definable character at all, born, living, dead, everything in one, a total vision of life. As a psychiatrist, he came to understand that these two personalities were not unique to himself, but present in everyone. However, he acknowledged that he was apparently more aware of them than most, particularly of number two. In my life, number two has been of prime importance, and I have always tried to make room for anything that wanted to come from within. Much later, he was to rename these two personalities, the ego and the self, and to maintain that the play and counterplay between them constitutes the central dynamic of personality development. He believed that his number two personality conferred on him a privilege denied to his unfortunate father, namely, direct access to the mind of God. This was confirmed for him by the revelatory nature of his dreams, which contained images, such as that of an underground phallic deity, which occurred when he was only three which he knew must derive from a source beyond himself, and by a powerful vision, which he struggled unsuccessfully to resist, of the Almighty seated on a golden throne, defecating on the roof of Basel Cathedral, which signified to him, not unreasonably, that God had scant respect for his church. Such revelations made him intolerant of his father's spiritual perplexity, and gave rise to heated discussions between them. Whenever Carl tackled him with religious questions, the pastor became irritable and defensive. You always want to think, he complained. One ought not to think, but believe.